You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of Yahweh's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to Yahweh for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yahweh and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before Yahweh. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before Yahweh in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before Yahweh that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before Yahweh, and the bull shall be killed before Yahweh. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before Yahweh in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before Yahweh, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp, and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. 
When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of Yahweh his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat, and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before Yahweh. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove, as the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of Yahweh's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 594 of this podcast. We'll be at episode 600 before you know it. Today's Monday, the day after Resurrection Sunday, 2023. That is to say, it is April 10th, 2023. And that was a reading for you from Leviticus chapter 4, Laws for Sin Offerings. What's interesting about this passage is you have this category of unintentional sin, as in it was an accident, which is to say that this category must include real sins that are also really accidents. It was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. It wasn't premeditated. I forgot that that is something we're not supposed to do. Mea culpa, mea culpa. I'm sorry. And here is the prescription. It's also interesting to me that 
there is a different prescription if the priest has sinned, if the whole assembly has sinned, if a leader of the people has sinned, if a common person has sinned. So there again, we have these categories. We are being told that we should draw some distinctions, as in the standard is not quite the same. The expectations are not quite the same for a priest, for the whole assembly, for a leader of the people, for a common person. There are different sets of expectations. If you're a common person in ancient Israel, then you are not being asked to bring a bull for your sin offering. But if you are an anointed priest and you unintentionally sin, you even then are held to a very high standard because you are a priest of the Most High God. You're supposed to be representing the people to God. You're also supposed to be representing God to the people. And so it's a very serious thing. It's also a very serious thing if a leader of the people who is not a priest, but they are some kind of a military leader or a civil leader, think civil authorities, think on the one hand, our generals in the U.S. military versus lawmakers or mayors or governors of states or the president of the United States or Supreme Court justices. Those would be leaders of the people. They're not priests, but they are leaders. If you are one of those people, you're not necessarily representing God to the people or the people to God, but you are an example. You are supposed to be held to a higher standard. This is paralleled and echoed in the New Testament when we read, for instance, that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. They have to be accountable for the things that they teach and for their handling of the word. They are not just any old person with some added credit and some added authority and you get to listen to them talk more. No, they are not just given more power, they are also given more responsibility. The two go hand in hand, and you can't have the one without the other in God's economy. In his nation, Israel, and also in the New Testament church, the two go hand in hand. You don't get power without responsibility. You don't get responsibility without requisite authority to be able to act on that responsibility. But when there's a sin, it's not always a premeditated thing. I think sometimes we get this mistaken notion that it's not really a sin if you didn't realize that it was a sin or you weren't thinking about it. You were focused on something else and you made a mistake here. Well, then that doesn't really count. Well, no, it does. It's still a sin and you still need to make it right. Even if it's an accident, you should be more intentional. You should be more on purpose and that might be part of your error here is that you weren't paying close enough attention to what you're doing and whether this pleases God. Is this the will of God that you would act in the way that you acted, that you would speak the way that you spoke, that you would refrain from certain things that God said, hey, don't do that. That breaks shalom. That breaks peace between you and God. That breaks peace between you and your fellow man. An unintentional sin is still a sin. And if you would make things right, well, then good. You know, do your best to make things right. Confess your sin, repent of it, and seek to restore shalom. Stop engaging in that behavior. Be more intentional moving forward. Also, if you've caused some damage, repair the damage if it's in your power to do so. Or as Christians, now we don't offer 
the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. But what we would do is we would appeal to the grace that we have in Christ and by God's power, by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer, we endeavor to self-control <laughs> out of those kinds of behaviors that were a transgression, that were harming shalom, harming our neighbor, offending God. We want to do the will of our Father who is in heaven and not shrug it off. Some people, I think, suppose that to remain ignorant of things means that they're not culpable, as in there is no guilt on their part if they just don't know that they've made a mistake. I don't want to know that I've made a mistake, that I've done a thing I shouldn't have done, and if I don't know, then it won't count against me. That's not the way that it works. You should want to know what you ought to do and also what you ought not to do because it can still be a sin and ignorance is not really a satisfactory defense. Being negligent is still a wicked thing when you are supposed to be intentional. You do know that. And we all instinctively know that, but some people will blame shift and they'll say, well, I didn't know it was this person's job to tell me, so they're actually the one who is more at fault here. And you say, well, okay, that might be, right? It might be that not just you is at fault here, but you are at fault. I think here of, for instance, with it being Resurrection Sunday yesterday and Good Friday was this past Friday, the conversation that Jesus Christ has with Pontius Pilate when Jesus is taken before Pilate for judgment because the Jews can't put him to death, it's not lawful for them to put him to death, given that the Romans are over them, have conquered and subjugated them, ironically, for their sin. And here is the one who will redeem his people, and they are sinning even under foreign occupation, which is judgment. Nevertheless, the back and forth between Pilate and Jesus includes this little bit where Jesus tells Pilate he would have no authority except that it had been, it had been given to him from above. Therefore, the one who had handed Jesus over to Pilate was guilty of the greater sin. What that also implies, besides just that this person who's handed Jesus over is guilty of a sin, for doing so is that Pilate is in the process of committing a sin. He is working up the courage, you might say, trying to find a way to extricate himself, but ultimately it is foreknown what he will decide, that he will crucify Jesus, or he will give orders for Jesus to be crucified. He is not guiltless just because he washed his hands of it. Well, you can wash your hands all you want. It doesn't mean that you're innocent. You can say, well, it's really the Jews who put me up to it. That may be that they are at fault as well. That doesn't mean you're not at fault, Pontius Pilate. The ones who gave Jesus over being the priests, they are held to a higher standard than just riffraff worthless men in a mob shouting crucify him. But that doesn't mean that the riffraff in the crowd shouting crucify him is absolved of their guilt. They also are sinning in this scenario. And so there might be different severity levels, if you will, to the sins being committed, but that doesn't mean that some of these people are sinning and if they are held to a higher standard than only they are sinning, the common people are innocent. That's not the way that it works. 
That is not the way that it works. We need to get out of that kind of thinking. Sometimes when we say all sin is sin, we can be telling a true thing and also setting the stage for absolving ourselves without doing any of the good faith work that would be in keeping with repentance. And what I mean by that is when we say all sin is sin, then we say next, subconsciously, quietly, in our own heads, perhaps, but that guy, what he's doing over there is really sin, and what I'm doing doesn't compare to that, and therefore, he's sinning and I'm not. If he's guilty of a greater transgression, but it's either sin or it isn't, and we don't see any shades or degrees of severity, then he's sinning and I'm not sinning. It is possible for there to be some sins which do not lead to death and others which are capital offenses. It is possible for somebody in a position of authority to commit a greater sin because they're being held to a higher standard. Somebody who's in a position of teaching to commit a greater sin because more will be expected of them with their handling of the truth. And also for those who are receiving the spoken word or the written word to be guilty of sin for believing uncritically what they were told. It's also possible for those who are committing the greater sin to make accomplices of the people who are watching and saying nothing and maybe even passively taking part because they don't intervene to say, no, 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 don't do this thing to this innocent man or this innocent woman or this innocent child. And that's clear. That's clear from the sum total of God's word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For instance, if we know that our fellow man is alienated from God by their sin and we say nothing, we do not call them to repentance. We don't tell them that they could be made right with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, believing and confessing that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, just as it is written on the third day. We say nothing about that. Their blood is on our hands if they are going to hell as a result of that unbelief. And we didn't even try to share the gospel with them. Now, this gets to be a little bit complicated where we are also told, do not cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs what is holy. So you have to judge with right judgment, not judge by appearances, and assess whether you're dealing with swine or doggos in the way of people, whether their character it could be likened to uh, a pig or to a dog to whom we are told not to give what is holy or not to cast our pearls, that is wisdom and truth. Nevertheless, if we say that everybody is a dog and everybody is a swine and therefore give ourselves an exemption from having to share the gospel with anyone, having to correct anyone, having to call anyone to repentance, then God knows better. And that might be an unintentional sin because everybody's doing it. That doesn't mean that it's not a sin. Moving on from that, I want to talk in this episode about a Neil Postman book I just finished up this morning. I started it over the weekend and just finished it up this morning. Neil Postman and Steve Powers' work, How to Watch TV News. Copyright 1992, Neil Postman and Steve Powers. Copyright 1996, Blackstone Audio Incorporated. Release date, December 8th, 2006. I listened to it on Audible and found it to be 
quite good. If you are someone who watches the news on TV or you follow the news closely online, maybe all the more if you follow the news online, this could be a very helpful book to you in that it goes behind the scenes on how the news is curated before it's delivered to you. What are you actually hearing? What are you actually seeing? Are you actually becoming well-informed as a member of the voting public or as a citizen or as a business person or as a mom or as a dad or a husband and wife or as a friend? Are you developing well-formed opinions and judgments of what's going on in the world when you watch the news? Neil Postman and Steve Powers are here with some helpful considerations and observations and advice, which we will talk about here as we go. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about some current events items, and these might help us to understand all the more the value in How to Watch TV News by Neil Postman and Steve Powers. First up, Planet Moron is the name of the poster over at Not the Bee, not their real name, I presume, not their birth name, not their Christian name, just a pseudonym under which they post at Not the Bee. WAPO ran this helpful tip just in time for spring, quote, your garden is killing the earth, end quote. WAPO being Washington Post, if you weren't uh, aware, if you didn't know, the Washington Post, some people will call it the Washington Compost. Their tagline is democracy dies in darkness. Washington Post is owned, I believe, still by Jeff Bezos, the guy who runs Amazon. Very wealthy guy, also of the left. Uh, The Washington Post tagline, democracy dies in darkness, is um, maybe a promise. Maybe not a warning. Maybe a promise. Planet Moron posts this morning at Not the Bee, and I quote, you know the old legend about the elephant graveyard, the place where elephants nearing the end of their days instinctively gravitate to so they can die there alone away from the rest of the herd. That's what joy is to the Washington Post. The Twitter post of the article, this is uh, maybe you could say an opinion piece link. This one weird trick can save the planet. Their write-up is I'm no genius with geniuses, but your garden is killing the earth, Dana Milbank writes. Continuing on with the Not the Bee share, quote, so as to ensure you didn't mistake the headline as overheated clickbait misrepresenting a more balanced and nuanced piece, columnist Dana Milbank drives the point home. I'm sorry to say that if you have a typical urban or suburban landscape, your lawn and garden are also dooming the earth. Now, we'll just stop right there. Just stop right there. The link embedded in this statement is found in the words dooming the earth. If you were to click through that link, it would take you to another Washington Post piece. This one by Daryl Fears. Under Climate and Environment, the piece is titled One Million Species Face Extinction, UN Report Says, and Humans Will Suffer as a Result. According to this piece, the use of pesticides is potentially 
going to kill one million species. One million, not creatures, but one million species. And the use of pesticides, it should be noted, is in the majority of cases for agriculture, not your garden in the backyard, not your yard, but agriculture. And so what we find is that there's an opinion piece here at the Washington Post that links to an article at the Washington Post, which draws out lessons from a UN report, which says one million species potentially face extinction due to humanity's use of pesticides and herbicides. Now, just a little note about me. I am the son and grandson and great-grandson and great-great-grandson of farmers. As far back as I go in the genealogy on the mullet side, as far as I know, they were farmers. And when I was a kid, my dad farmed organic. He wasn't raised with farming organic. That's not how his father before him farmed But my dad got into organic farming because he did the research and realized, hey, these pesticides and herbicides could be really dangerous and in fact are really dangerous and they might be causing cancer and that really concerned him. And so he switched to organic farming and he no longer does farm, but he used to. And I remember distinctly growing up hearing about how we should be buying our food organic. And to this day, I maintain if organic food, that is food that is not genetically modified in a lab somewhere or given pesticides and herbicides, if organic food were cost-effective for me to feed my family with, then we would do that. We would go all organic. Now, some things we do go organic for. My wife, for instance, has a medical condition a genetic mutation and some other attendant health issues that make it difficult for her body to get rid of toxins that build up. So harsh chemicals around the house, not so good for her. They can build up in her body and make her very sick. Harsh chemicals or pesticides or herbicides, even just trace amounts in food can build up in her body more than a typical person and that can make her sick. And so for her, We try and go as much organic as we possibly can. And for cleaning products around the house, we try and go for more natural options, not stuff that's been cooked up in a lab with chemistry so much, but naturally occurring plant-based materials and substances. I have no problem with the idea of people choosing to farm organic or buy organic or eat only organic foods. But that said, it's not cost-effective. It's very similar to the problem with renewable energy. If I had all the money in the world and it were all the same, I would absolutely slap solar panels on my roof and we would just get our electricity from the sun. The problem is it's not cost-effective. I don't have the money for that. I can't afford it. And I don't see that changing anytime real soon. So when somebody says, you must go to this, I have a real problem with that because I can't. So then what is really going to end up being the case when everybody says in government due to environmental activism, you must, you must, you must, you must. What we should understand is you won't and you're just going to do without because we're banning the inexpensive cost-effective option. 
when that's electricity, you say, well, okay, better stock up on candles and matches. But when we're talking food here, this is a really dangerous angle to say in order to save 1 million species from extinction, you know, due to this UN report, we believe now that 1 million species are potentially facing extinction. We're going to ban pesticides and herbicides. Well, what's an example of that being tried? Uh, The situation in the Netherlands. Farmers, thousands of farmers being forced off their land, labeled as terrorists when they protested the seizure of their property rights by the state so that EU climate legislation could be complied with. What is downstream of that when you just take farmland off of productive use for agriculture? You have less food and you have higher food prices. Less food and higher food prices means potentially you're going to have people starving to death. People who were already malnourished, not getting enough calories in the day, not getting a balanced diet, now get no calories and not enough to survive on. If that is where this is going, I'm sorry, but I am against banning pesticides and herbicides. I'm against it. And let's see what happens when we try to be more responsible, you know, educate people on their use of pesticides and herbicides, try and develop more natural, less costly, less dangerous, less toxic options for increasing yields for farmland, maximizing the potential output of an acre or hundred acres or a thousand acres or 10,000 acres of land. But you start banning all these things for people's lawns and their private gardens. You are just a hop, skip and a jump from banning it from use on farms. And then what's downstream of that is people starving to death, which I am not for. I'm very much not for that because we were given the dominion mandate by God himself that applies to all people be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, was never rescinded by God. In fact, he reiterated it several times. The folks who want to ban pesticides and herbicides wholesale, in many cases, the most radical of them are okay with the human cost. They're okay with, there just being a lot fewer people on planet earth. In fact, they think that would be uh, good for a lot of reasons, not just pertaining to the effects of pesticides and herbicides, but because we're going to build houses and we're going to live in them, because we're going to be drinking water, because we're going to be undertaking projects that change the landscape, the so-called fragile landscape. So you have to understand what's all embedded several layers down here. When you read a post like this from the Washington Post, when you read an opinion piece or an article, when you read a report from the United Nations, It really does come back again to Neil Postman's and Steve Powers' premise that we need to be careful how we watch the news, how we listen to the news, how we read the news. Don't mistake this quick headline and a short opinion piece for being informed on the topic and knowing enough to vote one way or the other. You should probably crack open some books that cover all sides of the debate and weigh and measure what's actually being argued once you really get down to the rubber meets the road sort of a prescription as well as overall worldview. 
It's a really, really good book I would recommend. Towards this end, by Charles C. Mann, The Wizard and the Prophet is a great, great book, a great story of two real-life scientists who had opposite prescriptions for what we should do about so many poor, hungry people in the developing world, around the world. Norman Borlaug was the son of farmers, and his prescription was let's raise the output. Let's raise the yield potential for dry land farming in places that are arid or prone to drought. Let's cultivate more drought-resistant strains of various crops. William Vogt was the only child of two parents who fought constantly and yelled at him. And William Vogt came to the conclusion that we should go around the world convincing developing nations to curb population growth, give hysterectomies and vasectomies to their people, encourage their people to get hysterectomies and vasectomies, promote abortion, access, contraceptives, so as to decrease population growth. Tell these people, tell these countries, tell their governments that if they do this, they will be wealthier and more prosperous because they'll have fewer mouths to feed. You keep producing the same amount of food, fewer mouths to feed. The fewer people can eat more of the food per each. They won't be as hungry and problem solved. Well, that's just one set of examples of two scientists coming to very different conclusions, looking at the same problem. It's not that one is a scientist and the other one isn't. It's not that it's all the same, which way you go. Your worldview, what you believe about God and man and the created order makes a huge difference whether you are going to even make an unintentional mistake here. And when we're talking about the whole world, (laughs) uh, which the UN is, we're talking about the whole world the consequences of a mistake here could be the lives of tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people. So it's very important that we do our research before we come to conclusions or start confidently asserting this, that, or the other thing in a hyperbolic way, especially if so many of us get emotionally charged about these things. Don't get super emotional about it until you have done the hard work of reading it up and actually informing your opinion with more than just a Washington Post piece or a UN report. Not to say, again, going back to How to Watch TV News by Postman and Powers, it's not to say you need to have an informed opinion about everything, but this will directly impact where your food comes from, how good the food is, how much it costs, how much of it you can afford to buy and eat for you and your family, And your friends as well depend on these kinds of decisions being made right. And I'm not talking hypothetically in the distant future. I'm talking within the next months, years, decades of our lifespan, Lord willing. It's very important that we grasp these issues and are engaged on them. Now, that doesn't mean you become an expert. It doesn't mean that you need to be an expert in everything. But it is to say that a better use of our time than following misleading and oftentimes highly manipulative short dips of the toe into the pool by corporate media into a topic here and there, curating our impressions of those topics. Uh, A better way to spend our time than just consuming 
that is to read books on these subjects. And then when you come across some headline that is sensationalist or some report or some opinion piece or somebody talking at the water cooler, you are able to understand what is being claimed, what's being suggested. You're able to unpack the images and ask important questions. That's what Postman and Powers recommend. One of the things that they recommend, read books. Also, another thing they recommend is being willing to admit, you know, I don't have an informed opinion about that. I I really don't have much of an opinion on that. It's okay to say, I don't have an opinion. I don't have enough information to be able to form an opinion on this or that particular issue. Now, I would say as a Christian, and I don't see this in Postman and Powers' work, you go to God's word, you read it, and you believe it, and you trust God first. You read other books downstream of God's word. You pay attention to the principles and where God says we come from, why we're here, what we're supposed to be about, where we're going, what man's problem is with regards to sin, what the solution is in Christ, that we were made to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to obey him, to trust him, to serve him, that we are image bearers of the Almighty, that justice matters to him, that mercy matters to him, that humility matters to him. We understand all these things, and then we come to other people's written works on history or environmental science or economics or political science or art or music or any number of things. We come to those works with some framework already built by God into which we can plug the information other people are giving us. By all means, look at images from the other side of the world. Look at images coming out of Ukraine. Look at images of China surrounding Taiwan, practicing encirclement after Taiwan's president visited Kevin McCarthy here in the U.S., or Kevin McCarthy went to visit Taiwan. Look at those images. Also, maybe pick up some books on the history of China or the history of that whole region. Pick up some books from people with differing opinions of the situation now and in the past and moving forward and consider what would be true and good and beautiful for us to embrace in these situations. That's what I would add to how to watch TV news. But insofar as Paul writes in Thessalonians that we should aspire to live quiet lives, minding our own affairs, working with our hands, being dependent on no one, walking properly before outsiders, having a good conscience, having a good reputation, insofar as that would be our aspiration, well, when we see policy prescriptions that would work counter to those aspirations, we should say, "Ah, you know, I'm going to keep digging, right? I may not have a better answer than that yet, but I don't think that's going to be the conclusion of the matter. You know, that's an okay statement. In fact, that might be a very wise statement. That might be a very humble statement. And it will, one, give you credibility with other people when you just say, "I, you know, I don't know enough about this. What do you know about it? Can you tell me? Can you share with me? 
can you recommend something to read or listen to on the topic, something to research? If we do that towards the end of the very New Testament, very Christian aspiration to live quiet lives, minding our own affairs, working with our hands, being dependent on no one, then maybe, just maybe, we won't be satisfied when a plan is put in place that would make it hard to impossible for us to garden, for instance. You know, gardening, I think, is a very good way of pursuing what Paul is talking about. It's not to say you grow all of your food, perhaps. Maybe you don't have the know-how, but maybe that's another thing you research. I'm going to do some reading on gardening and how to do it well and how to do it effectively, and how to get good high yield fruits and veggies and herbs and seasonings from my backyard. You know, you do the research and you figure out, hmm, okay, so I could grow some of this over here and this over here and this over here. And then somebody comes along and they say, you know what, we need to put a stop to people growing gardens in their backyard. And you might say to yourself, okay, you know, I aspire to live a quiet life. And so I'm not going to talk back and I'm not going to research anything that might lead to contradicting this person in a way that would upset them. Or you could say, I aspire to live a quiet life. And if I want to live a quiet life, I'm going to have to speak up here and here in defense of my right to grow a garden in my own yard and grow my own produce, for instance. I'm going to have to speak up on this so as to maximize my own independence, which is to say, minimizing the degree to which I would be dependent on someone else to give me my supply of food, give my family a supply of food. You could look at it like that. And then what we have is not these bipolar, hyperbolic tropes about people who get their opinions from Fox News or people who get their opinions from MSNBC. Oh, you sound like MSNBC. You sound like CNN. I'm not going to listen to you. I don't watch CNN and I don't, I'm not going to listen to you. Oh, you sound like Fox News. I don't watch Fox News. I'm not going to listen to you. I don't care what you have to say. You should check your sources. Like I was told last week. The funny thing being that I, <laughs> I don't watch Fox News. Uh, The closest I get is watching little clips here and there. If something important was said in in an interview or a monologue or an important news story wasn't covered by somebody else, and the clip that's embedded in a report I'm reading happens to be from Fox News, I'm not going to avoid Fox News. Either this is a thing that happened or it didn't happen, but let's start our researches by citing our sources. Yeah, I got this from a Fox News clip. You betcha. And it matches other sources as well that are also saying this is a thing. And also it matches the lead up and the context and the background of broader trends, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk here about another news item. Annie Oakley at Not The Bee posts as of yesterday, Governor Abbott working as swiftly as Texas law allows to pardon army sergeant convicted of murdering BLM rioter wielding AK-47. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is seeking a pardon for Army Sergeant Daniel Perry, who was convicted of murder yesterday for shooting and killing a Black Lives Matter rioter 
who was wielding an AK-47 during an anti-police protest in downtown Austin in July 2020. The murder case was brought forth, of course, by a Soros-backed district attorney. The governor tweeted on Saturday that he was working as swiftly as Texas law allows and that pardons in Texas must be recommended by the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Abbott has also instructed the board to expedite its review so that he can sign the pardon once it reaches his desk. So you read this, and there's a lot of ways that this particular story can be embellished or downplayed or spun. That's the word that we use. That's the term for when the facts of a story are presented using adjectives that are intended to support a certain narrative or a certain agenda, typically a political agenda, but not necessarily just political. It can also be somebody's business model, somebody's advertising campaign. It could be trying to downplay a negative news story about the effects of a product or a service that a business person or corporation or salesperson or advertising exec wants you to keep on buying or buy more of and not be discouraged in buying. So for this story here, I guarantee you the coverage of this exact same news item, the coverage is going to be wildly different in terms of the word order, word choice, adjectives, For instance, I would just about guarantee you that most corporate media are not going to describe the person who was shot and killed holding an AK-47. They're not going to describe that person as a rioter. The folks who sympathized with the Black Lives Matter movement, they will say this was a protester and not a rioter. They will also make arguments about how these are dangerous streets that the protests are taking place on. And so why shouldn't the protester, mostly peaceful protester, be carrying a firearm, open carrying, it's Texas after all, when this driver is armed? And who can know, right? They would probably quote someone in the crowd that surrounded this guy's vehicle, they would quote somebody as saying, I didn't see him point the vehicle in a threatening way. One moment we were protesting and then the next moment I heard a shot ring out and this guy is dead. And because the accused is a white man who served in the military and because he shot a so-called protester, but actually a rioter, he will be tarred and feathered rhetorically in most corporate media tellings of this news. Governor Abbott, because he's a Republican governor of the state of Texas, and he is working opposite to the aims of this George Soros-backed district attorney and the Black Lives Matter movement and narrative, Abbott will be painted as the bogeyman, as the villain, as the one who is actually obstructing justice. Justice is being served for this guy to be tried and convicted of murder. Now, 
On the other side, you will see the term rioter being used. Conservatives will say, these were not protesters, they were rioters. What differentiates a riot from a protest? Violence, destruction of property. Once you get violence and destruction of property, and that becomes a characteristic, as in, it's not just one guy who got a little carried away, but everybody else was behaving themselves, but it's a characteristic. There were calls for violence, there were actually violent acts, there was damage done to people's private property and to public property. Once that becomes a characteristic of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, you can say, ah, these are rioters, not protesters. Now, interestingly, this is another point brought up in how to watch TV news, that it's not always been the case that cameras were allowed, microphones were allowed in the courtroom. In fact, that's a relatively more recent development. And states like Colorado, Colorado, for instance, led the charge on inviting news media into courtrooms. One of the reasons why prior to that, the rule was, no, you're not allowed to come in and take photographs or take video or take audio was that let's suppose somebody is accused of committing a crime and they are getting due process in a court of law where the evidence is being weighed, they're being tried by a jury of their peers, and then the media gets a hold of the story and the media wants to try this person who is accused in the court of public opinion. Let's say that the public is not following all of the details of this story as closely as they should and would in a court of law. But the public comes to the conclusion that they have been well-informed because they've been seeing images and hearing audio and hearing commentary on a particular court case for weeks or even months. And they feel certain that they know this person is guilty or this person is innocent. Let's suppose the public is just sure this person is guilty of what they've been accused of before they've seen any evidence to speak of, just because of the way the headlines are written, the way the coverage rolls out. And let's say that in a court of law, the man is found to be innocent, but he's been tried in a court of public opinion as well. He's not going to be punished by our government, but broader society, on the other hand, because he was tried in a court of public opinion as well. Broader society may never forgive him or forget what he was accused of. So did he really get due process? Was he really being afforded the presumption of innocence until guilt was proven beyond a reasonable doubt? That's an important question we should grapple with. Say, for instance, when you can predict reliably what the coverage will be if a young white man is shot and killed during an interaction with law enforcement versus when a young black man is shot and killed with an interaction from law enforcement being the context. You can accurately predict what the coverage will be in both of those. In the one case, it'll be a passing footnote on the nightly local news 
In the other case, it will be all the corporate media nationwide wants to talk about for months, and then they'll bring on pundits and talking heads to serve on panels and discuss and make passing references without even going into the details of particular cases, just just making passing references to this or that young black man's name and lumping the whole list of young black men's names in with an insinuation that our justice system is inherently racist. It's a two-tiered justice system. One set of laws and rules and standards and norms for white Americans, the other set for black Americans. But let's say that's a known quantity. We understand that that happens, but here's an individual law enforcement officer who is caught up in all that. Do we care what the facts of the case are regarding his innocence or guilt? You know, if he's guilty of himself committing a crime, who is going to enforce the law with regards to the law enforcement officer, other law enforcement officers, or who is going to give him due process, the justice system. And so what does the news media do? They step in and they say, we're going to try him in a court of public opinion. And then what you get is if the officer involved is acquitted, cleared of all charges, an investigation concludes that he used an appropriate amount of force. He was doing his job. He was doing what he was supposed to do. He was enforcing the laws. He was defending himself or some other innocent party who was being threatened with a deadly weapon. If the media decides they don't want him to be innocent, then they'll just keep repeating the parts of the evidence that led them to their initial conclusion that this fits the larger narrative And so an innocent man can be subjected to a modern day lynching. And that's what we're seeing. But it only works, friends, it only works when we are complicit. So the media can tell a lie, for instance. Whether anyone believes it is up to each one of us. If the media says, for instance, that apples are causing cancer, Everybody should stop eating apples. And then in five years, the media says, apples cure cancer. And so everybody starts eating apples. It wasn't true in both of those cases that apples are causing cancer and curing cancer, that the media was telling the truth. And that's a mild example with inanimate objects, but let's take it and make it more personal. The media says law enforcement is a villain in this country. Law enforcement is the problem, not a solution to problems of immorality, lawlessness, sinful men behaving wickedly. No, no. Law enforcement is the problem. It's the cause of criminality. We wouldn't have all these criminals if it weren't for law enforcement. If it weren't for laws, you can't have lawbreakers if you just don't have law. So shoplifting, for instance, can cease to be a statistical feature of crime analysis for a city or a state or a nation if you just decriminalize shoplifting. That's how the reasoning goes. And you say, oh, okay, well, you know, what's the big deal? It's no big deal unless you own a shop and your inventory 
is being given away for a five-fingered discount, left and right, you can't make money. You can't stay in business when your merchandise is being stolen and you're not being compensated. And you say, well, I don't own a business. Yeah, but you shop at businesses. And if you want to keep on shopping at businesses and for there to be businesses for you to shop at in your area, then you should care when people in your community are destroying those businesses or making it impossible for them to stay open near you. That should matter to you. You should care about that, right? Moving on. The Chinese military is openly doing drills, rehearsing the encirclement of Taiwan. Edward Teach over at Not The Bee writes, as of Saturday, April 8th, you really don't want to live in a world where China feels emboldened to make big, hostile moves on the geopolitical stage. Well, folks, I'm sorry to say we live in that world already. China's military is rehearsing the encirclement of Taiwan during three days of military drills. Beijing, which views Taiwan as a breakaway province of China, called the operation a stern warning to the island's government. Now, you might be asking yourself, gee, where does China get the nerve? What makes them think they can go around making threats against a nation the U.S. calls a key partner? How do they think they can get away with this? I have no idea. And here we've got a short gif of Joe Biden on his bicycle falling over in the middle of a crosswalk here a couple years ago, I think it was. The suggestion here is China feels emboldened because Joe Biden is incompetent. He's an incompetent old man who is not all there upstairs and is a figurehead. He's projecting weakness regarding Taiwan, just like he projected weakness with regards to Ukraine, just like he projected weakness with regards to the fall of Afghanistan. And here's a problem as I see it, because it's not just that we need to be aware of the potential for being misled, coming to the wrong conclusions, thinking that we're well-informed when we're actually really just being given impressions of things or entertained. It can come through even from people you like and agree with. So it can come through from not to be, for instance. Have I been given an informed opinion by way of this gif of Joe Biden, president of the United States, falling off his bike in the middle of a crosswalk? Have I gained an informed opinion? Well, I understand the meaning of this because I've read and I've researched and I've listened and I've thought about these sorts of things. But let me give you a caution. It's not just that we learn to watch the news or read the news, listen to the news carefully. We also should learn to be careful in the way that we tell other people what's in the news, talk about what's in the news. Are we making persuasive arguments? Are we making a compelling case for what is true and what is beautiful and what is good? Are we being persuasive and are we winning people over with the truth and with what is beautiful and with what is good? I don't want to be too critical here because it's not like Edward Teach is wrong. He's not wrong that Biden is projecting weakness. That's true. But there's a lot more to it than falling off your bicycle 
There's a lot more to it than stumbling over your words. There's a problem of principles, and we need to talk about foundational principles. And if we're talking with people who don't like to think deeply about things, well, then we need to talk with them about why they need to care more about thinking more deeply about things so that we are not a superficial, frivolous people, so that we are not an easily manipulated people. As long as you keep us laughing and smiling, we'll do whatever you want. As long as you make us feel the feelings we want to feel, we'll give you whatever whatever you want. We'll participate actively or we'll passively stand back. Now, the business with the circlement of Taiwan, it's very concerning. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. One, because the Chinese Communist Party is evil. All right, that's the first reason. The first reason we should be concerned about China taking Taiwan is because China is ruled by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the CCP is evil. They do evil because they are evil, because they're committed to evil principles. They operate under evil principles. They want to rule other people with evil principles in an evil, corrupt way. Insofar as we don't want to be ruled by the CCP, we also should not want other people to be ruled by the CCP. They have no fear of God before their eyes. They do evil, monstrous, heinous things. And they will do evil, monstrous, heinous things to the Taiwanese if they are allowed to take Taiwan from the Taiwanese. Unfortunately, I think we are doing a very similar thing with regards to Taiwan as we have done with Ukraine. Not a one-to-one, but there really needs to be a more clear statement of intentions with regards to whether Taiwan is its own separate, individual, independent, autonomous country. But what would be helpful for us to understand, to know what's going on here? How could we get up to speed on the potential avenues from here? What China is likely to do, for instance, is there any chance For example, is there any chance that China is not going to try to take Taiwan? Is there any chance of that? How would we know? Well, we could look at what the history is for Taiwan, understanding that the nationalists led by Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek, they fled to Taiwan and set up there after the civil war with the communists led by Mao Zedong. We could take a look at that, for instance, to understand why Taiwan is separate. We also could consider East Asian sensibilities with regards to face. If they see this as a loss of face, that Taiwan is its own independent country, and that the United States of America is affirming Taiwan's independence and saying that we will stand behind and protect Taiwan, if they see that as a loss of face, is that liable to produce the kind of action that leads to an outright conflict between us and China? Also, what's the strategic importance of Taiwan? From the standpoint of not wanting anybody to be under CCP rule, we might say, we care about democracy, therefore we care about Taiwan remaining independent of the CCP. 
But if that's all there is to it, well, then we should probably be going to war with China and trying to liberate the Chinese people from CCP rule. If we say, well, anybody who doesn't want to be under CCP rule shouldn't have to be under CCP rule because the CCP is oppressive. How far do we take that? Do we go into places that are currently governed by, controlled by the CCP and remove the CCP? Is that what we do? Or when we say that is a reason for us to stand behind and beside Taiwan and protect it from China, keep China from taking Taiwan, do we look at what Taiwan represents to us and to the world? Also, do we consider here that China for some time now has been getting built up by the globalists, by the leftists here in the US to be the competing superpower in opposition to, in rivalry with the United States of America? Do we look at that and recognize this is about far more than Taiwan? This is about whether China is going to rule the world or whether the United States is going to be protecting the free world from tyranny, from oppression, from communism. There's that piece. And to understand better what's at stake here, once we realize that's a piece here, we might say, well, then I want to understand not just the history of China or Sino-American relations, Sino being China, so Chinese-American relations. I also want to understand the history of the United States relative communism around the world. How has the United States of America related to other countries that were threatened by communists or had been taken over by communists? How have we related to Cuba, for instance? How did we relate to the Soviet Union, for instance? How did it go when we opposed them? Did it work out well? Was it done properly? Was it more cost than benefit? How is this different with China than that was with the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance, or what have you, Vietnam, Korea? These are important considerations. But if we think it's just embarrassing, right? It's just they don't want to lose face. Also, we've already lost face with having Biden for president. If we think of it only in those terms, well, then what's the conclusion we're supposed to come to? We care more about our potential loss of face than we do them losing face? Or do we need something that is transcendent? We need something potentially made of sterner stuff having to do with, regardless of whether it's embarrassing to me or you've humiliated me or I look weak or I look strong or whatever, right is right. What the CCP would do to the Taiwanese people is monstrous and barbaric and awful and evil, and we can't let that happen. Or our national security depends on having access to the microchips, the electronics that Taiwan produces, which happens to be an outsized share of global supply for quite some time now. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company makes a lot of microchips that go into our computers and our smartphones and our various other electronics and our vehicles. And if we can't get semiconductors and microchips from Taiwan 
and China takes those facilities, then we are at a major disadvantage for future conflict or future competition, economically or militarily. If we're looking at another Cold War, this one with China primarily instead of the last one, which was primarily with the Soviet Union, then what does that look like if we just let them take Taiwan without a whimper, without a complaint, without fighting? You know, these are the kinds of things that we really do need our reading of the news, watching of the news, listening to the news to be informed by. I have a poster, for instance, on my wall of the Peoples of China, produced by the Cartographic Division, National Geographic Society, Gilbert M. Grosvenor, President, William E. Garrett, Editor, John B. Garver, Jr., Chief Cartographer, Johnny F. Shoup, Associate Chief. This is a map of China that hangs on my office wall with the various peoples, the various ethnic tribes of China portrayed, what parts of the country they are predominant in, what their characteristics are, what their mode of dress is like, what their mode of living is like, what their culture or subculture is like. China's a big, big country, by the way, and an old, old country. So these have been distinct groups of people for quite some time, and they each have their own history. It's not all just one monolith. When we say China, we need to understand that there's a lot of people who consider themselves to be Chinese who are very distinct from each other. Now, thanks to the CCP, which wanted to make everybody more or less interchangeable under Mao, but I have this poster on my wall so that I look at it every now and then and ponder that fact of America's chief rival in the 21st century, not just over Taiwan, but all over the world. We're competing with each other everywhere, on every continent, in arguably every country, including our own, including the United States. I have another poster on my wall, Campaigns of the Civil War, a commemorative map, centennial edition, copyright 1961. And oh, by the way, the Peoples of China map is copyright 1982, so four years before I was born is when this map comes from. It's a beautiful map, beautiful, beautiful illustrations in color. But I mention these two maps because I look at these things and there's a lot more to understanding China than just saying China wants Taiwan and we don't want them to have Taiwan. That's all you need to know. There's a lot more to China than just the CCP runs China controls China and has controlled China for decades. There's a lot more that needs to be appreciated and understood about them. There's a lot more that I need to understand about American history than just that there was a civil war, there was an American revolution. And oh, yes, we helped in World War I and World War II and won the Cold War. There's a lot more that needs to be understood. In fact, for instance, campaigns of the Civil War shows these arrows all over the eastern United States blue arrows and red arrows marking where forces moved ahead of major battles of the Civil War. Leading figures of the Union and Confederacy on opposite sides of this poster. Flags 
of the Union, flags of the Confederacy at the bottom of this poster, field pieces and various small arms and swords on this poster, various ships that were important, like ironclads and sailing ships. I look at this map and I don't even have to read all the details to be helped in being reminded that there's more to it than just there was a civil war and these were the two sides. And this is what I think they were fighting over. And I know know, a, a couple of names. I know a number of names who were involved on the two sides. There's more to it than that. And there's more to it in our day when we read current events, we read the news, we watch the news, we listen to the news. Another headline here, all from not the bee today. <laughs> Daniel Payne writing on Saturday, the abortion pill is teetering in legal uncertainty after two federal judges simultaneously banned and approved it. There are a whole lot of federal district courts in the United States. Did you know that, by the way? which means that rulings on controversial issues can sometimes get, well, complicated, like this. The Associated Press tweets out, breaking access to the abortion pill. I don't know if I'm going to say this right. Mifepristone in limbo. Access to the abortion pill in limbo after competing rulings from federal judges in Texas and Washington. One federal judge says, no, we're going to temporarily halt sale of this drug. The other one says, yes, you can definitely buy this. And what happens, right? How do we decide? How do we determine which federal judge to listen to? If you're in Texas, do you listen to the Texas judge? If you're in Washington, do you listen to the Washington judge? Whichever one's closer, whichever one's meaner, whichever one's uglier, whichever one would win an arm wrestling contest. Like, how do you decide? How do you decide which to go with here? Also, oh, by the way, when even federal judges can come to opposite conclusions about the legality of a certain abortion pill, these are men who are presumably well-educated, thoughtful, articulate, well-informed on the topic. How do we expect to fare if we are not those things and if we don't endeavor to become those things? Actually, for that matter, if they can come to some opposite conclusions, being well-informed, presumably well-educated, presumably articulate, thoughtful, if they can come to opposite conclusions, despite all those things, what hope is there for us if we become all those things? I mean, they can't both be right. It's either permissible or it's not permissible. It's either legal or it's not legal. It's either a decent moral thing we should have access to, or it's not. And here's what I would say. If you don't even know that these kinds of things do happen historically throughout the history of this country, maybe start there. Start with brushing up on the history of these kinds of rulings contradicting each other. Or sometimes a thing being ruled one way at one point and then retroactively being repealed. And why is that? Why why does that happen? How does that happen? Why does that happen? Maybe start there. I'm not going to delve into in this episode, the abortion pill. Specifically, I am for the banning of the abortion pill, just to be very clear. I'm not delving in this episode deeply into why that is. But what I would interest you in, if I can, 
if I can persuade you, is go check out the arguments of these two judges. What kinds of arguments are they making when they issue their ruling? Also, what's the precedent for using precedent to make decisions? Also, where does it go from here? When two federal judges make contradictory rulings, does it go to the Supreme Court? What does the Supreme Court do with that? Can the Supreme Court be wrong? Does the Supreme Court sometimes contradict itself if you give it enough time? These are all important questions we should know the answers to if we're going to weigh in on these kinds of things, if we're going to know what to make of them, or one step further, how to participate, what role we would play if we were suddenly looped into a situation like this one. At the last here, one more news item, again, all not to be, all day, every day, from Saturday, another piece by Daniel Payne. If you like your George Soros prosecutor, you're going to absolutely love your George Soros president. The busiest family in U.S. politics has been a lot busier than any of us realized. Son of George Soros scoring easy White House access records show, according to reporting by the New York Post. And then there's pictures of the younger Soros, Alexander Soros, posing with Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama and Chuck Schumer, all Democrats, interestingly enough. I don't see him hanging out with any Republicans. He's very much on board with the Democrats, him and his father before him. Now, what does it mean, right? Here again, let's go back to Postman and Powers and how to watch TV news. Even if I agree that this is a problem, which I do, I agree that it's a problem that the Soroses are pushing for what they're pushing here in the U.S. with our elected leaders and getting people elected who will push for their agenda. I agree that that's a problem. They have a ridiculous amount of money to be able to devote to this agenda of, in some sense, annexing the United States of America, having their way with U.S. politics and American society. But even though I agree that this is a problem, is this good reporting on the situation? Now, this might be a thread to pull on whereby I determine that I want to research and read further. But if it's not that, it's just a, hey, look, Alexander Soros posed with Barack Obama, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. Where do I go with that? If I'm not going to research it further to figure out why that would be a problem or what it means, what the implications are, what to do about it, then what's the value? Is it a photo op that I'm concerned about? As in, does <laughs> Alexander Soros taking a picture with Nancy Pelosi constitute some some kind of a crime? Is that a sin? Is it a evil, vile thing for Alexander Soros to take a picture with Barack Obama or Chuck Schumer? Is it some scandal for him to be at what looks like a basketball game? It looks like there's a picture of him at a basketball game or some such sitting on the sidelines watching. But is that a thing to be all upset about to try and stop? Hey, stop this guy from taking photos with Democrat politicians in the U.S. No, no. But if we are to understand that there's a very cozy relationship between George Soros, the Hungarian billionaire, and his son, Alexander Soros, and the White House, which Alexander has visited a dozen times in 2022 alone, 
if we're to understand that there's a very, very close partnership and that the money flows freely and then the policy decisions are an extension of the larger goals and ambitions and vision of the Soros family, then we might start to get somewhere because then we start trying to figure out, all right, well, what is the vision of the good life which George and Alexander Soros have? What is their vision of the good life? What does it look like? And is it in fact good? What do they believe is true? And is it in fact true? What do they hold to be beautiful? And is it in fact beautiful? That's where we should go with looking at these photo ops. Also, too, let's suppose that their vision of the good life is not good. It's corrupt. Their truth claims are not true, but they're lies. Their idea of what is beautiful is actually quite ugly when you really look at it. Well, then what? Then what do we do? Well, we might, for instance, try and figure out how to draw attention to who all they are investing in, if they're investing in district attorneys, for instance. Knowing which district attorneys around the country they have given money to will help us to predict what kinds of behavior to expect from those candidates. And then perhaps we make the public aware so that those candidates don't become actual district uh, district attorneys obstructing justice, for instance, for example, or engaging in political hit jobs on front-runner candidates for president in the Republican Party or among conservatives. For example, just, just for instance, maybe that's something we do with it. So I'll leave you with this. Having finished How to Watch TV News, which I would commend to you, having finished that, the next book I plan to read is a book regarding George Soros, the man behind the curtain. Matt Palumbo is the author. And seven and a half hours length maybe will teach me a thing or two about who is George Soros. I keep hearing so much about him. I don't know enough about him. I know people who like him include Barack Obama, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden. I know people who don't like him, Victor Orban, for instance, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> but I need to know more than that in order to have an informed opinion. In order to speak from a position of knowledge and not spread false reports, I probably should do some research. And if Matt Palumbo has the receipts, maybe he's not the only book author I read, but I listened to him talk with Candace Owens. He sounded very knowledgeable. I understand he's associated with Dan Bongino's program, works behind the scenes to help him put on that show, the Dan Bongino show. But maybe I read Matt Palumbo's book about George Soros. And then maybe I go find a book which is pro-George Soros, which helps to explain some of his actions and statements in a way that would not just be, oh, that's awful, and that's awful, and that's awful. You know, a photo op, for instance. I'm going to look at a photo op, and I'm going to say, hmm, well, I can see who gets along. But to know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, start with asking the people who like the photo op. They like seeing these people together, working together, smiling together, taking pictures together. Also, ask the people who think this is not so good. This is not good 
for our country. It's not good for our pocketbook. It's not good for our economy. It's not good for our freedom. It's not good for our justice system, our educational system. These are ways that you can watch and listen to and read the news more effectively, more productively. Go upstream of the news or latch on to a particular topic that you're reading about in the news and decide, you know, this, this here, this particular issue, I don't know enough about it to be an informed voter. If somebody asks me what I think about it, I don't know enough to be able to give an answer. And I want to. You can't read everything about everything all the time, but you can start somewhere. You can pick one issue and say, okay, I want to understand better. What would most honor God? What would most advance the objectives of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his people on earth in this time before the eschaton, between now and the second coming? Briefly, I'll say, with regards to that kind of an ambition and how it relates to this podcast, I would hope this podcast is not all you're getting in the way of information about current events or good books, philosophy, theology, economics, science. But what I hope is I'm giving you some ideas. I'm helping you to brainstorm other resources you could avail yourself of to be more informed, to get knowledge, to get understanding, to get wisdom, to get insight. I do want to talk about everything. That's my tagline. My name is Garrett Ashley Mullen, and I want to talk about everything. That does not mean that I know everything, that I understand everything, but this podcast is actually a leading way for me to know more and to understand more. In order for me to talk about these things, I have to do the research. Also, when I do the research, me talking through what I've read, what I've heard, what I'm considering helps me to process. I'm a verbal processor, and hopefully it helps you to process as well. So stay tuned in upcoming episodes. I hope to bring you some findings on the man behind the curtain inside the secret network of George Soros, which is the next book I intend to listen to. Do check out Postman's and Power's book, How to Watch TV News. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.